Have you ever had a nickname? You know, nickname, something like, you know, clingy or curly or dubby or worm or gleek or rabbit or flossy may. Yes, those are all people that I have known in my life, just in case you were wondering. Maybe I might even tell you one day about Dalwina, but I probably won't. We've heard nicknames. We know about nicknames. And if you have been in this state very long, maybe especially if you were born in this state, then you might be familiar with this word that sometimes South Carolinians are called. And that word in South Carolina is a sand lapper. South Carolinians are sometimes called sand lapper. Well, what in the world is a sand lapper? Well, if you'll go to SCIWAY.net, it's pronounced Skyway, stands for the South Carolina Information Highway, Skyway.net, you'll find tons of great stuff on South Carolina, lots of helpful information out there. You can find just about anything that you need to know on South Carolina. You can also find some information on what a sand lapper is. So a sand lapper could also be called a sand hiller or a clay eater or a dirt eater. Yeah, that's the nickname you're looking for, right? Well, you know him. He's just an old dirt eater over there. That's kind of what it means. But interestingly enough, it seems that if we do have a history of eating dirt around here, or maybe I should say at least clay. Skyway.net gives some interesting information on this dirt eating as far as what that looks like historically. It writes, the practice of eating clay was brought over by slaves from Africa where it was believed to, among other things, soothe the stomach. In South Carolina, our clay is whitish in color and made of kaolin, a mineral you might recognize from its use in over-the-counter drugs like kaopectate. So there you go. I mean, uh, I don't think that means you need to start getting dinner from the backyard instead of the grocery store. But at the very least, that kind of gives some respectability to this notion of eating dirt or eating clay. There was an article in the New York Times in 1866. And in 1866, this is what the article said about our South Carolina ancestors. The lowest representatives of the United States, little more than mere animals, Strange, undeveloped, and repulsive. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Now, thankfully, the article did go on to say, though, that those early sand lappers here in South Carolina did not get sick very much, and they lived a long time. So they had that going for them, which was nice. Now, so we have this picture of dirt eating. I don't know. I'm wondering, did any of y'all know that? Because i got to be honest, I didn't know any of that until this week. I knew the word. I'd use the word. But you know the only thing I knew about the word sandlapper was the little song that I heard when I was a kid. Nell, let me say her name right, Nell McMaster Sprott was a music teacher from Winsboro, South Carolina. And she wrote a song, and the song went like this. We are good sand lappers, yes, we're good sand lappers, and we're mighty proud to say that we live, yes, we live in the very best state of the USA. That was nice. Y'all did good. That was impressive. That was, I didn't know that was going to be a sing-along. That was great. I love that. Yeah, it was good. 
All right, so, so really, this lady wrote a song telling kids in school to eat dirt? Is that what this is about? She wrote a song telling kids to eat clay. No, the idea behind this, of course, is to be a good South Carolinian. It means to, to be a good citizen. See, you may not know this, or maybe you do and you've just forgotten it, but you are not accidentally here. You are not accidentally a citizen of this world, a citizen of this country, a citizen of this state, this county, this community. You are not accidentally on this earth. And especially if you are a Christian, you are not accidentally here. Right now, this is your time. This is your season of life. I stood yesterday looking upon my 80-year-old dad walking the steps of the stadium in Clemson like it was nothing. I thought, man, he's still got it. He's still going. He's still in his time. We are still in our time. You are not accidentally here. This is your time to do all for the glory of God. This is your time, your season to be a good sandlapper, to be a good citizen, but more specifically to be a good Christian. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning. Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes to Titus, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities. The government is a mess. It's full of inconsistency. It's full of corruption. There is more bribing going on than we could possibly imagine. More secret deals going on than we could possibly imagine. We have legislation from every branch that's oppressing Christianity. We have godless leaders and we have godless laws. Now, before you say amen, I wasn't just talking about America. I was talking about the island of Crete 2,000 years ago. The part that I left out was this part. One Roman senator who lived during the time wrote that Christians were taken by the government and they were wrapped in the hides of dead animals, and then they were cast out in front of packs of wild dogs where they were killed. At the hands of the government, Christians were taken, and they were burned alive. They were attached to stakes, and then they were set on fire, sometimes for no other reason than just to be lamps outside at night for people to see by. We get stickers and donuts when we vote. It's a different world. Now, I'm not saying that means we're just supposed to roll over and and just ignore godless leaders or godless laws. By no means. Listen, we need to pray, we need to vote, we need to volunteer. God may even lead you to run for office. Great. He may lead you to help someone campaign to run for office. Great. We need to be involved. But we don't need to miss this picture. Paul is writing to Titus, and he says that the leaders that were slaughtering Christians were still supposed to be submitted to. And that sounds crazy, right? I mean, what in the world is Paul saying? I mean, maybe Paul had an upset stomach before he wrote this letter. Maybe Paul went out and, and ate some dirt from the opium fields, you know? I mean, maybe he just has completely lost his mind, and he doesn't understand what he's talking about. It sounds crazy, but it's really not. In fact, Peter said the exact same thing. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him. So why should we submit? Well, Peter says we should do it for the Lord's sake. What does that mean? 1 Corinthians 10, 31 tells us what? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It doesn't say just do Sunday morning to the glory of God. It doesn't say just do Christmas and Easter to the glory of God. It says do all to the glory of God. Do work, do family, do marriage, do leisure time, do vacation, do church. Do everything to the glory of God. In other words, do everything for the Lord's sake. Do everything so that God gets attention through your life. So why should a Christian do that? Peter's got an answer for that too. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. See, a Christian never needs to forget this simple truth. As believers, we cannot forget this. We are the people of God. We're the people of God. We are God's people. We're God's family. We are God's children. And we're not just his people. We aren't just his family. We aren't just his children. Peter goes on to say in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. So we're the people of God, but we're also strangers who temporarily live on this earth. In other words, we have dual citizenship. We are a citizen of heaven, and for us, we're a citizen of the United States. And please don't mistake, one of those citizenships is more important than the other one. One of those citizenships is much more valuable than the other one. And it's not the one here on earth. It's the one we have in heaven. As citizens of heaven... Christians belong to God. I mean, just just marinate on that just for a second. You belong to God. The God of the universe. The God who spoke the world into existence. It's not just that you belong to your family or you belong to work or you belong to church. You belong to the God of the universe. You are His. That's incredibly comforting news, especially in the difficult moments of life that we belong to God. Difficult moments like submitting to rulers and authorities that we struggle with. Those in the city, those in the state, those that are national. People like principals and teachers, like parents and pastors, policemen, politicians, all types of people in positions of authority. Actual positions of authority. Recognized positions of authority. And Paul says we need to submit to them. The thing about it is this. If we can really get this into our minds, if we can understand that we belong to God, don't get that phrase out of your mind. If you can get it in your mind that you belong to God, you know what happens? This idea of submitting doesn't seem so hard. If you can really get in your mind that you belong to God, then this idea of submitting to authority, it really doesn't sound like that thing that you hate to hear or that you hate to do or you just don't want to do because you keep going back to the fact that you belong to God. 
Yeah, but Dow, you don't know my boss. You don't know my parents. You don't know my teacher. Maybe I don't. But it's interesting when you think through the reality of even what we're reading historically. You know who the president of the world was at the time that Paul and Peter wrote their letters? A guy named Nero. Man, good guy, that Nero. He was particularly kind and helpful to Christians. I mean, we've already heard that he provided them with animal skins and fire. Nero was beyond wicked. So this is the guy who's in charge of the world when they're writing what they're writing. (laughs) So, So don't miss this. Paul and Peter are saying, you need to submit to the leaders who might actually one day take your life. These guys are crazy. What in the world are they thinking? Where are they getting this idea from? I mean, where in the world would they come up with the advice that we should submit to people who might take away our right to have church? Where in the world would they come up with this idea that we should submit to people who might even take our lives? These guys are crazy. Where are they getting this stuff? This is where they're getting it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 23. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. If you're looking for an example of what it means to submit to difficult rulers, look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus ultimately and in measure, submitted to those who actually ended up taking his life. Why in the world would he do that? Peter's got an answer for that too. Verse 23, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus never stopped trusting his father from the manger to the to the cross to the empty tomb every detail of his life Jesus was screaming and shouting to us you can trust God you can you can trust God you can completely and totally trust him why because he is the king above all other kings. He's the ruler above all the other rulers. He is the authority above all the other authorities. He is the president above all presidents, the governor above all governors. He is the pastor above all pastors, the parent above all parents. There is no one who is higher than God. That's why we sing songs about him and not us. He is the king, and that's why you can submit to human leaders. You know why? Because they're human. They're not God. And you can submit to them because you belong to God. This is not a small thing. You actually belong to God. He has purchased you. He has rescued you through the blood of Jesus Christ. He has given you love and mercy and hope that lasts forever and ever and ever. And you belong to him. You're in his hands. Nothing can touch you. We said this past Wednesday night in Bible study that someone once said, I am invincible until the Lord calls me home. That's great. Nothing can actually touch me except God. And when he does, 
I will have peace forever. That's the background for why we can submit to rulers and authorities. But that's not all Paul says we need to be a good citizen. He goes on to share a little more. Look back at verse 1. He says to be obedient. So let me get this right. So I'm just supposed to lay down in front of all these godless leaders and all of these godless laws and just roll over and obey whatever they tell me to do. No, not at all. For instance, if you're a homeowner's association, by the authority of the HOA president and the HOA board of directors, if if they issue a law for your neighborhood that says no garden gnomes in the front yard, you know, just put your gnome in the backyard, all right? You don't, don't, don't get all riled up. It's a, it's a gnome. You know, just put the gnome in the back. But if the HOA says to you, you can no longer read your Bible in your house, yeah, you got to disobey that. You have to graciously and respectfully disobey that, even if you have to do it in secret, like many Christians have to do every single day around the world. Sometimes we have to respectfully decline. Sometimes we have to respectfully disobey. Peter was standing in front of the religious council in Jerusalem, and they told him, you have to stop talking about Jesus. You have to stop preaching the gospel. You can't do this anymore. And this was Peter's response. We must obey God rather than men. Listen, garden gnomes are not God's will. Okay? You can put those in the backyard. You, you can disobey garden gnome laws, okay? But you cannot disobey a law that says, stop talking about Jesus Christ. You have, to, you have to disobey laws that say, you can't talk about Jesus and you can't make much of God. You have to disobey laws that stir you to directly do the opposite, especially morally, of what God has called you to do. Now, does that get really murky and muddy in our day and age? Yeah, it really does. It, it makes it a lot harder. All the more reason to walk with Jesus. All the more reason not to shoot from the hip or wing it. All the more reason to say, God, here is this issue. I don't know what to do. God, help me see. Can I, can I make much of Jesus and still do this? Does this deny you? We are in a season of life for all of us where we're having to ask that question a little more than we thought. Sometimes we respectfully disobey, but it really needs to be something connected to the truth of God and his gospel and the truth about Jesus, not garden gnomes. Look back at verse 1. Next, he says that we need to be ready for every good deed. There's an old cheer that many of you may have even done. I'm sure they're still doing it now. You might hear it at a football game or a basketball game or, you know, an air hockey match. I don't know, whatever you may be at. And, you know, one side of the room, you know, they start yelling, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got spirit. How about you? And then the other side, they jump in. Oh, no, we got spirit. You went. And they go through the whole thing. And back and forth and back and forth this happens until one side does what? We got more. We got more. And then the place just goes nuts. Listen, we need to be we got more Christians, Okay. That's who we're supposed to be. We need to be people who have more spirit of God in our lives when we leave this building as much as when we come to this building. We need to be more spirit Christians. Listen, there's going to be times that we're going to have to engage in public debate, and there's going to be times that we're going to have to engage in public law. 
There's going to be times that, that we may need to protest, like many people around our country did, protest the, the, the killing of unborn children. There's going to be times that, that we need to engage in things like that, and we need to be wise, and we need to do it well. But what we don't need to do is to be eager to argue all the time. We do not need to be eager to debate all the time. We do not need to be eager to whine and complain and sue and a number of other things all the time. That's not what we should be eager for. We should not be eager to be mad, crusty Christians. We should be eager to have the Spirit of God in our lives. We should be eager to do good in our community. We should be eager to, to promote the welfare of where we live. God's people are having a very, very difficult time. Their, their nation was having a very difficult time. And this was God's counsel for them in the middle of their difficulty. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We should be eager to seek the peace and the prosperity of where we live. We should be eager to do that. We should not be eager to be difficult and crusty. We should be eager to do good, eager to make much of God, eager to glorify God. Some days, that's easier than other days. Some election seasons, that's easier than other election seasons. But it's still the call of the Scripture on our life. Next, Paul says we're not supposed to malign anyone. Don't, don't slander anybody. Don't, don't publicly go out of your way to publicly try to make someone's name bad. Don't publicly slander someone or, or repeat things that you know are going to be harmful to them. Sometimes it's tempting for us to do that. Sometimes it's tempting for us to disrespect. But the picture here is not to disrespect out loud. Now, if this is not the only time the Bible says this too, by the way. This isn't just like one verse of Scripture. This is, this is throughout the whole Bible, this picture of not slandering people's names, this, this picture of, of learning how to be respectful in a wise way. And so if that's true, then a lot of professing Christians may have to change their talk radio habits this week. And they may have to change their social media habits this week in order to obey what the Scripture says here. Let me just give you a picture of this that I think is helpful from John Piper. He says this, The way you respect a scoundrel like Judas and the way you respect a saint like John will be different. But there is a way, and we are to look for it and find it. He goes on to say this, It probably will not mean that the word scoundrel should drop out of existence, but how you use it will be profoundly changed. It's a big picture. It means that we really need to be careful about how we speak about one another in private and public. And we really need to be careful about how we speak specifically because of the context of our rulers and our authorities. We need to decry ungodless behavior. We need to speak clearly about godless behavior. But I'll give you one example that I heard a pastor years ago say. He said, Christians should not be the ones saying slick willy. And I think he's right. We can say that our former president had immorality, but we need to be careful about our words if we are going to claim the name of Jesus. Speak clearly about the truth. Speak clearly about sin, but be careful to honor Jesus before you get a jab in with someone with a name that probably is not going to be very respectful. 
Paul says, don't malign. Next, he says, to be peaceable. Don't be quick to argue. I want you to think about the normal people that are around your life. The normal people that are around you at work, at school, at church, at home, wherever it is that you go, at the ballpark, at the grocery store. Would those people say that usually you are the pushy, bossy person always trying to get your way? Not every now and then, because we all have our moments, right? But I mean, the normal practice is you're the, you're the pussy, pushy, bossy person who's always trying to get their way. Or even more so, that you're the person who rejects people if they disagree with you. You know, if they don't take your side, oh, no, you're, you're going to give them the silent treatment. You're, you're going to shut them out. Or you might even kind of push them away in other ways. Paul's saying that's kind of the opposite of Christianity. It doesn't mean that we may not do that every now and then, but it doesn't need to be the practice of who we are. We, we need to be more peaceable. We need to be seeking reconciliation instead of creating conflict constantly over and over again. Next, he says a similar word. He says to be gentle. Gentle means to be yielding and to be kind. Gentle means that you're not always fighting to defend yourself. You're going to have moments where you may have to defend yourself, but it's not the practice of your life. You're not, you're not constantly defending yourself. And maybe put another way, being gentle means that you're not easily offended every single time someone wrongs you. You're not quick to pout. You're not quick to overreact. You're not quick to punch your fist through a wall. You're, you're not quick to go on Facebook and leave these weird, strange, random, don't use anybody name revenge comments. You know what I mean. Well, for the person who is in front of me, other girl, you know, just, just don't do that. You know, just learn to be gentle so that you can glorify God, so that God can get attention through your life. One more he says here in verse 2, showing every consideration for all men. Have you ever driven behind or in front of or beside the person that on the morning commute thinks that every other person in every other car is a complete idiot? You know this person, right? I mean, at least two or three times a week, maybe you just happen to be at the same four-way stop with them or, you know, the same stoplight or, or maybe y'all are, you know, going down the main road together. And this person is always waving their hands up in the air and they're always slamming on their horn at every stoplight and, and every four-way stop and every person has the audacity to only go five miles over the speed limit. You know, we see these people. They aren't courteous and they're not considerate, ever. You know, not one morning, okay? I'm just assuming we all have that one morning, okay? But we're talking about the habit of life. Paul says, don't, don't let that be your habit. Don't let that be what you are known for, even by strangers that just happen to be around you in the morning commute on any given day. Don't let that be your nickname. Don't let that be your reputation. And at the very least, if you're going to do things like that, don't put an I haunt for Jesus bumper sticker on the back of your car, okay? And maybe if you're like that all the time, maybe, maybe pull that Holland Avenue magnet off, all right? Just, you know, leave it at the kitchen table, you know, and just until things settle down, all right? William Barclay says this about what it means to be considerate. The man who is considerate is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Listen, there's a time to be angry, if I believe, and affirms that. But 
We don't need to be angry all the time. We need to be more considerate than we are angry. And what this really describes is an an attitude of self-control. It means that you kind of have self-control over most areas of your life, a lot of the areas of your life. And you use that self-control to be gentle and peaceable and considerate toward others. You you use that self-control to glorify God and to do things for the Lord's sake. You do those things to make much of God. Now, you may be thinking, one, you may not agree with any of this, and that's okay. I mean, technically, you're disagreeing with the Bible, so I I won't lose any sleep over that. But you may be struggling with some of these things, and that's all right. But, you know, there's another picture here, I think, practically for us as Christians. So what? I mean, why do we really need to listen to these things? Why do these things matter? Why should we listen to what Paul and Peter say about how we act toward rulers and authorities or how we act at the stoplight or, or how we act in our homes or at work. Why, why should we listen to these things? Well, we've already given one reason, right? You, you belong to God. You're God's. He's rescued you. He's given you life and love and eternity. But why should we also follow this example that Jesus, Jesus did these exact same things? So why should we follow the example that Jesus set for us? Erwin Lutzer is the senior pastor at the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. About 16 years ago, he wrote a book, and this was the title of the book, Why the Cross Can Do What Politics Can't. This is what he writes. Christians should be actively involved in the city of man, building it, maintaining it, and working alongside of those headed to destruction. But Christians should also have no illusions about building an earthly utopia, for they must pass this life with continual opposition from the citizens of the city of man. And then he says this, They must march through the crumbling empires of the world, spreading the knowledge of the gospel. Why the gospel? Why why should we be spreading the knowledge of the gospel? Lutcher writes this, Incredibly, the church has, for the most part, abandoned the very message that is most desperately needed at this critical hour of history. Don't miss that. Most desperately needed at this critical hour of history. Look, a better government with better laws and better leaders, that'd be great. Let's pray for that. Let's pursue that. Let's let's do all we can to make that happen. But the greatest and most perfect government that the world would ever know will still crumble. It will still be a crumbling empire because only one will remain. Only one kingdom will remain. There's only one God. There's only one king. There's only one ultimate ruler and authority. And so for us, we live every day with this confidence that one thing will remain, and that which remains is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will be what we put our hope into today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day because we have already gotten what we most desperately need. You see, a believer has been rescued by Jesus Christ. Their most desperate need has been met. And if that most desperate need has been met, then we have a responsibility. You see, if we're going to win a lost and dying world, a a world that's headed for destruction, and as the Bible describes hell, we cannot do it pushing them around, being angry at them, shoving them around, maligning them, and not being peaceable and gentle and considerate. 
We stand where we need to stand. We defend where we need to defend. Even if that includes going into a just war, we are always active in the city of man, but we are ultimately citizens of the city of God. And we live like his children. We live like his kingdom is the only thing that remains. You see, when you belong to God, you belong to the king. And if you belong to the king, then this picture right here of wisely submitting, of wisely obeying, of being eager to do good, of being peaceable, gentle, not slandering anyone, but also being considerate, these things do not become overly difficult when we begin to remember, wait a minute, I'm a child of the king. I belong to God. And his kingdom is not something that will last for just a few years or a few days or a few months or a few hundred years. The kingdom of God will last forever. You are a child of God forever. And so there's no moment of life. There's no moment of your week. There's no moment of your month. There's no difficulty. There's no tragedy that you can't turn and say, I belong to God. He is my king. And that changes everything. That changes everything. His kingdom will be the only kingdom left. And his kingdom is forever. Let's pray.